Good morning. Let me get set up here. Look around this morning and see several familiar faces. I was with you last summer at some point. I think some of you were here, many of you were here. Uh, my name is Rob. I attend Pleasantville Assembly of God, where my family and I are involved uh, with Pastor Brad and Steph over there in ministry. They asked me to greet you folks. Uh, as I hear a lot of the names, um, I recognize the, the names and um, some fond memories they had here. Uh, I am, I told the Sunday school group class this morning, I'm working toward my ministerial credentials with the Assemblies of God. I'm in my last class, so I'm looking forward to see what God has for me and for my life and uh, my ministry. Uh, before I start this morning, I want to extend an invitation to you. Uh, this Friday night at Puzzleville Assembly, 7 o'clock, um, I'm not sure if any of you have heard of the worship band Iron Bell. Um, if not, check them out. They're awesome. Uh, but Stephen McWhorter, the head singer for Iron Bell Music, is going to be with us to lead a worship service, which in and of itself is exciting. But Stephen has an awesome testimony of how God delivered him from a deep drug addiction. And we're hoping to use this as an outreach to the community. So if you know someone who is in the bondage of addiction of any kind, bring them Bring them out to this worship session. Call it a concert if you have to. It doesn't matter. Just get them there. Uh, we're hoping and believing God's going to do some pretty awesome things uh, during that worship service. So that's this Friday, 7 o'clock. Doors open at 6. Um, if you've been at Pleasantville Assembly, you know we're probably sized about the same as what you guys are, 150 seating, give or take. So get there early for a seat so you can get your friend there and get them seated too. Um, so I, I did want to extend that invitation to you. Uh, before, before I get started here, uh, I, I just felt like I ought to explain this Bible. This Bible looks really new. It's only about a year old. They say never, touch, never trust a preacher who has a Bible that's <laughs> worn out. So I felt like I should probably explain that this morning. Uh, also, too, I'm not very long-winded. Uh, Pastor Brad shared with us a few weeks ago that there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. So uh, I'm watching the clock. I've got a clock here, so <laughs> no hostage situations in the house this morning. But uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles on your devices, however you get the Word of God before your eyes, to the book of Nehemiah, uh, while I lay the groundwork for what I want to talk to you about today. And when I look at our desire to win the lost for Christ, and isn't that what we are supposed to be doing as a church? When I look at our desire to win the lost for Christ, it seems that there's a three-part process and that we step through as God plants within us his heart for those who don't know him. And I, I don't mean to seem mechanical or impersonal or oversimplify this by calling it a process. Probably a better would, word would be a journey. But nevertheless, if we can identify a process of sorts and realize where we are in these steps as individuals, as Christians, as collect collectively as a church, it may better equip us to fulfill the Great Commission in our churches, our families, our workplaces, our communities, and the world at large. Now, this process came to mind, uh, my mind during a morning session in my prayer room, so I'm not blaming anyone else for this. These are my thoughts. Uh, 
for some time there had been a stirring in me as God continues to change my heart into one that he can better use for his purpose. And uh, my, my wife confirmed this some time ago. She said, I can really see you developing a heart for people. And guys, isn't that cool whenever your wife confirms something, you know, a good thing, you know, not like, hey, you left your laundry lay around again. But when your wife con- confirms a good thing, that's really encouraging, isn't it? But she said, I can see God changing your heart because I'll, I'll tell you, I work in IT, I work in technology and computers. And stereotypically, us computer guys aren't the most uh, people savvy people in the world. Uh, my best friend works in HR, and we tease each other back and forth. Uh, I call him HR. He calls me IT. Uh, we tried, I, I, uh, regardless of how I look, I do try to exercise. We would go out to Shawnee Lake and walk around the lake, and I learned not to take him with me because as we're walking, every 30, 40 steps, he's running into someone he knows, and we stop, and I wait, and he talks to them. Takes, uh, what should be an hour walk takes us two and a half hours. I said, could you just shut up and let us walk? I'm here to exercise. So I learned walk by myself. Don't take HR with me. Uh, But as I sat there in the prayer room talking with God about this desire, three words came to my mind. Burden, vision, and action. And my thoughts that that are going through my mind concerning these three steps are too many to contain in a a 30-minute message. I'll I'll give you the kind of the thousand-foot view of, of what I'm thinking this morning. First, we have to have a burden for the lost and the hurting around us. Second, once the burden is realized, we begin to think, what can I do about this? We put together a plan to address the need. And third, we implement that plan by taking actions. As these ideas unfolded, I thought, this is all well and good, but is there an example in Scripture that I can point to that reinforces this idea. I like when the Bible backs me up or I back it, back it up, whichever, whichever we're talking. So enter Nehemiah. He is our biblical example of burden, vision, and action. And I don't know about you, but Nehemiah is kind of one of those books of the Bible. It's, eh, it's Old Testament. It's in there. You know, I've not really spent a whole lot of time studying it. And I don't know why it came to my mind because it's not like a, a passage or a portion of the scripture that I can quote or, you know, comes to my mind firsthand, but uh, we'll blame God. Uh, But before we read Nehemiah, let me give you a little bit of a backdrop of what was going on for Israel, the nation of Israel during that time. As a result of their continued disobedience to God's law, the Israelites were taken captive and exiled by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Again, if you're a Bible scholar, I'm not, so my years are approximate. Uh, The city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 538 B.C. The Persians had in turn conquered the Babylonians, and the Persian conqueror Cyrus the Great gave the Jews permission to return to Palestine. So the Jews were conquered by the Babylonians, the Babylonians were conquered by uh, the Palestinians, or the Persians, I'm sorry. So that's kind of where we are in this story. But even with people moving back into the city of Jerusalem, the walls surrounding the city still laid in ruins. So enter Nehemiah. The account of Nehemiah takes place roughly around 430 B.C., and I promise this gets less boring. Nehemiah was a cupbearer in the court of the Persian king Artaxerxes. So he was Artaxerxes' cupbearer. And, you know, the job of the cupbearer was to taste everything that came down the line of the king. That way, you know, lucky you, someone tries to poison the king... You get it instead. You think your job's bad. 
Interestingly, Nehemiah had been called, has been called, I didn't know this either until I began studying, he's been called the James of the Old Testament, challenging people to know their faith by their works. Nehemiah expresses the practical, everyday side of our faith in God. And if there's something I like, it's practical and everyday and not fancy, because I'm just not a fancy person. So let's open our Bibles and read uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm reading the NIV flavor of the Bible this morning. And, and let's read through this here. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the, ninth, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. At the very end, he says, I was a cupbearer to the king. I want to break this passage we just read apart and identify some examples in it for us. Verses 2 to 4 specifically, and I'll read it here again quickly. Han and I came from Judah, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven." These are just three little verses, but man, are they packed with, with examples and with information here. Let's look at First, obviously, Nehemiah inquired about the need. Step one, what is the need? What's going on? If we don't care enough to ask to get involved, we'll never know what the needs are around us, will we? If we don't, if we don't pause and take notice, it's very easy for me to get caught up in my own life. I drive up and down the road to work, to customer locations, to church, and I don't really give much thought to the people that are in the houses that I'm driving by or working in the, the businesses that I'm driving by or attending the schools that I'm driving by. These people just kind of, they become scenery and background to me. I'm just being honest with you this morning. 
So Nehemiah inquired. Nehemiah listened for the reply. It's one thing to ask a question. It's a, quite a different thing to, to listen to, to the answer that's coming at you, isn't it? When you pause and think about it, we interact with quite a few people during the course of our day, don't we? Lots of people, whether it's the person who rings up our sale at the register in the morning, maybe as we stop for coffee, our coworkers, our customers, list goes on. We have this script in our heads that we play out when we interact with people sometimes, don't we? Hi, how are you? I'm good. It's a real superficial interplay conversation we have with people. We go on to make some kind of inane conversation about the weather or our kids or, you know, it's all, it's all surface level stuff. But what if we took the time to actually engage people instead of roughing, r- rushing off to our next destination? What if we paused and allowed ourselves to hear the need? People will tell you what's going on in their lives if we listen, won't they? People are pretty forthcoming whenever there's hurt or anger or frustration, if if we would just pause maybe and listen. Verse 4, Nehemiah says he sat down. Now don't miss this. He paused. He stopped what he was doing. His day, his normal, his routine was interrupted. That's noteworthy. When we truly get a burden for people in their situation, our lives are interrupted the need begins to consume our mind. We find ourselves thinking about, daydreaming about the need or the situation where we feel maybe almost convicted might be a word. We get a burden for people. They become more than just the scenery and the wallpaper that I mentioned a minute ago. We notice. We begin to notice people. It's like we're driven to action. We feel like we we must do something. Verse 4 goes on to say that Nehemiah wept. He was moved to brokenness. Now I have a question. I'll pose it to myself. And again, you can just listen to me talk to myself. I'm not here to convict anyone other than myself. But when was the last time we allowed ourselves to be so emotionally and spiritually invested in the plight of other people that we were stirred to tears? To actually sit in our prayer closet and and weep over the situation, our world, and our nation around us. Onborn babies are being slaughtered by the tens of thousands. Children and women are being kidnapped and enslaved in the human, human trafficking industry. The recent news out of New York and the legislation that was passed allowing women to murder their almost-born children sickens me to my core. Probably does you too. But let me ask you, what are we going to do about it? Are we moved to action? Will we do something to advocate for life, to advocate for the unborn? And I can't wrap my mind around the mindset that someone has to be in to murder their own child, but that tells me they need Jesus. They need Christ. They need a loving Father. They need a Savior. Are we going to do something to relate to these ladies, to these women, that there's a God in heaven who loves them and loves their unborn child too? Are we going to take action? Families are enslaved to debt and despair, and parents are having to work so many jobs that the kids raise themselves. People feel unloved and unwanted and seeking validation in poisonous relationships, toxic chemicals, and everything except Jesus. My question today is, what will move us to tears? Now, not only did Nehemiah weep, he mourned. 
There's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference between weeping and mourning. Weeping is an event. Mourning is a state of being almost. Weeping is a place that you pass through quickly. Mourning is a place where you set up camp and stay a while. His burden for Jerusalem and his people prompted more than a one-time event. Again, his life was interrupted. His day-to-day was set aside. Nehemiah fasted and prayed. Prayer and fasting go hand in hand a lot of times, don't they? Prayer without fasting sometimes doesn't get the job done. And fasting without prayer is a diet. (laughs) And this isn't a message about fasting, but uh, the point I want to make is Nehemiah was moved to this degree that he, he felt he had to do something for a need other than his own. Chances are he had it made working for the king. You know, he more likely had a house to live in and, and food to eat. Nothing else he got to eat off the king's plate before he ate it. You know, he, he had it made. Probably a good retirement plan, health benefits, vision and dental and all that good stuff. He probably had it made. He didn't, he didn't you know, hey, Jerusalem, that's their problem. That's not my problem. But his life was interrupted and he got a burden. We examine these verses and see that Nehemiah had the burden for this people. So now let's talk a minute about vision. Let's open our Bibles back to Nehemiah chapter 2 this time. Beginning in verse 1, in the month of I'll say Nisan, is the 20th year of King Artaxerxes when wine was brought for him. I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so they can rebuild it. And the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, So I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, 
which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had, where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet... I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. And I said to them, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I think when we get serious, really serious with God and take on His heart for the lost and hurting, we find ourselves in a place where that burden makes us again feel pressed into action. We just can't keep doing what we're doing. We've got to do something. We just read that King Artaxerxes noticed that Nehemiah's countenance was down. He looked droopy. He looked sad. He was sad. Now the cupbearers in that day were instructed, you better put your best face on before you go before the king. You better be happy. To go and mope around and be sad and bum the king out probably meant you were going to get separated from your head it wasn't just wasn't done but not only was Nehemiah brave enough or maybe it was wasn't brave so much as he was overcome enough by this that he couldn't help but let his emotions show he was overwhelmed but he had the courage to respond to the king's inquiry you know he could have just said "Ah, I got a stomach bug I'm not feeling good but he 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 replied to the king's question And what I want us to take away from this passage in chapter 2 is this. Nehemiah had a plan, didn't he? He had an answer prepared, and with God's help, he delivered it. Nehemiah had specific requests. He went down through. He said, well, okay, so now that you asked, here's what I want to do. You know, give me a letter for this. I need need timber to, to cut for the structure of that, and you know, oh, hey, what about these guys? You know, give me a letter for these guys too that I can, we can cut timber. But he made these specific requests and he thought about what he would begin to, what he would need to begin the task of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. I think when we begin reaching out to people, it's helpful to ask ourselves some questions. Who is our idea geared to? What do we want to do with and for the target group? How is our idea going to connect someone with a new relationship with Christ or help strengthen a relationship they already have? Who's going to help you? And what's the desired outcome? Jesus taught in Luke 14, 28, but don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete the foundation only before running out of money and then everyone would laugh at you they would say there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it now in context Jesus is talking about the cost of becoming his follower and and living a life for Christ but I think there's an application for for us here in our ministries in our lives as well third notice that Nehemiah didn't come blasting into town and start running at the mouth about what he was going to do did he He took his time. He surveyed the situation. He said there was three days that went by, and he didn't mention this to anyone. He didn't go in like the big shot, the big man with a plan. He went in, started surveying the the situation. He went out during the night with a few others, and only the horse or the, the donkey he was riding on. He wasn't there to make snap decisions or brag about 
his idea. He gathered facts and assessed the situation. Got to admire, admire him for that. And fourth, only after making a plan, gathering his courage, and making specific requests, and carefully assessing the need, did Nehemiah announce his plan and rally support for his idea. He did everything in a neat and an orderly and a, a, a successive manner. His burden grew to where he could no longer take, he could no longer contain it. He considered and assembled his vision. The only thing to do left to do was take action. In just two verses, and we're going to reread where I left off last time, verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So verse 17 into 18 was the transition where he began to, to announce his plan, his vision, his burden. And before I move on, I want to be clear about something. Not every burden to vision to action journey ends with the start of something new. Many times, and dare I say oftentimes, most times even, it ends in getting involved in something that's already in place. It's worth noting, too, that a really good way to grow a burden is to take a look around at church, in the community, and see where help is needed. Then pray about which slot you could fit into. Not every ministry opportunity will be obvious at first glance, and this is something that I've really learned since coming to Pleasantville Assembly. You know, it used to be I had a, a mindset that ministry looked like this. You know, it was a a tent revival, or it was a missionary, or it was one thing or another, but sometimes opportunities can be disguised as helping with events at the local fire hall, or at the ambulance association, or helping with a community project, or spending time with people outside the four walls of the church. Steph calls it friendship evangelism, and I like that. That really has stuck with me when she made that comment. It's much easier to share Jesus with someone when you know them and can relate to them on a personal level. You know, how do we minister to a world that, you know, hey, this is a fine-looking church. Pleasantville is a fine-looking church. It's warm. It's comfortable in here. But what is going to compel people going up and down 56 beside Pleasantville Assembly to stop and pull in some Sunday morning? Now, we all hear those stories that that happens, absolutely, and we can pray to that end, nothing wrong with that. But how are we going to expect people just to, just to pop in? Hey, we've got a good thing going on in here, don't we? We've got good worship. We've got, every other Sunday, we've got a good word coming from this pulpit. We've got good things going on. And there's nothing wrong with our product, but are we, are we marketing it? Are we going out to our community and, quote-unquote, selling Jesus? Are we, are we promoting the gospel and letting people know, hey, there's a God in heaven that loves you. There's a Jesus is wild about you that he died on the cross for you. So as, most times it is a, a friendship evangelism thing. Now, I, I will have to pause and say there is a very notable exception to this. There is a, an AG missionary, not missionary, evangelist that I know named Gerald Mahan. I don't know if anyone's familiar with Gerald Mahan's ministry. 
He's a big black guy and about the happiest guy you'll ever meet. But Gerald is a house of fire. He is just something to hear him preach. But he, he will go out, and if you go out for lunch or supper with Gerald, you better be ready to hear the gospel preached to the waiter or the waitress. I've never seen anyone like this. I saw he and his wife put together a PowerPoint presentation. It was that song, If Each One Could Reach One. And it was set to that music. And there's all these pictures of him leading the front desk man or woman at the hotel to the Lord. And he had the whole crew at McDonald's lined up holding hands in an altar call. You know, he, he likes to go into McDonald's right before they close and start preaching the gospel. And I mean, I've never seen anyone like him. He encourages me, he challenges me, because sometimes I might want to crawl in a hole when he starts. But uh, he, he's, he's awesome, but he is the exception to the role. When I talked to him before, I said, Gerald, do you really think it sticks? You know, because you see all these people, and you can maybe even sometimes tell some of them aren't quite sincere when you look at them. He said, you know what, if I, if I lead a thousand to the Lord in word and one sticks, he said, it was worth it for that one. You know, he's not under any kind of delusion that it's, you know, each one, is, every person he leads in the sinner's prayer is going to end up in heaven. But his, his theory is if one sticks. But anyways, I, I just went down that rabbit trail to say there are exceptions to that. <laughs> but friendship evangelism is where we're at. Now, there's a book titled Small Town Jesus written by a man named Donnie Griggs. Uh, and if you're serious about taking a look into small town ministry, read this book. It is really good. I talked this morning in Sunday school about up in uh, Indiana County, uh, Indiana PA, Summit Church, Pastor Mel Massingale is in our district. And uh, two years now, this year will be the third, they host a, a uh, program called the Back 40 Workshop, Back 40 Conference. And it is designed to equip and empower small rural and small town churches to, to reach their communities. I talked about it in Sunday school this morning. I'll I'll put another quote-unquote plug in for it. If, if you're ministry-minded in our small towns, check this out. It's in August. Uh, Pastor Dave can probably get you the information. Um, but ministry in small towns and rural areas is very different than it is in big cities. You know, a, a lot of men and women are, who are called to the cities, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to drum up a crowd you know, for a Wednesday night Bible study or a program or a small group or something. We have a very different set of challenges here in, in Wimburn and Bedford and in areas like this. And this book talks a lot about that. But uh, something that works in a city might not work in Wimber. You know, this town has a lot to offer. I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll stand here and preach a minute just on Mimos and Bellas. You know, Wimber has a lot to offer. This is a great town. You know, Allen Bank is a great town. We've got good people who, who serve in the community. But in the book, Donnie talks about immersing yourself in the area where you're ministering. We have to connect with the, with the people and buy into people and get their buy-in to the people we're trying to minister to. We've got to invest in them. I like to call it earning the right to be heard. If the only time people hear from us is when we're trying to evangelize them, I don't think they'll be very eager to hear what we have to say. It's just my opinion. Take it or leave it. My opinion, a 99 cents will buy you a small coffee. And I want to touch on one more thing here, and I don't want to go long. I'm, I'm wrapping up. Uh, sadly, in our, our churches, and I'm not identifying my church or your church, we'll say the church in America, there's what I call a consumer mentality that has become prevalent in our churches. And what I mean by that is 
Churches, people who attend church oftentimes want to come and they want the song list to be what they want it to be or they want a, a young, handsome, skinny preacher who is, just gives all kind of good, I'm none of those things, who gives all kind of good illustrations and, and holds your attention for you know, 30 minutes, not 31, not 29, 30-minute sermon. And we become consumers of church rather than participators in church. And so many churches expect the pastor to do it all while they help or, worse yet, watch. But the role of the pastor is to equip the church for ministry, not the church equip the pastor for ministry. I think sometimes we get it backwards. We think, well, we're paying the pastor's salary and his health care and, you know, give him a housing allowance or, or a parsonage to live in. You know, we're doing what we should now. It's up to him. Uh-uh, let's read the Bible. Let's pause and read Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. I want you to see this. It reads, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. See, God calls your pastor a gift. We better start treating our pastors like gifts, hadn't we? But notice it is, it is the pastor's job to equip the people, not the people's job to equip the pastor. Church is the only, and this is a quote I thought up again, take it for what it's worth, church is the only quote-unquote game where the coach is also expected to be the star player. The pastor's the coach. He's supposed to be helping us, guiding us, equipping us, but we want him out there evangelizing the whole community and sit down for how many hours a week and write a message and sit down and write a Sunday school lesson and a Wednesday night Bible study and visit you when you're sick or marry you when you're, you're you're getting hitched and do all these other things. Well, now, my gosh, the guy's only human. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not addressing this church. I'm addressing the church in America. Please understand. Pastor Dave did not give me any kind of words to give to the church. <laughs> but verse 17 and 18 we just read are the culmination of Nehemiah's journey from burden to vision and now on to action. And three things stand out in this passage. Number one, Nehemiah states the need and the urgency of the need. His plea was an impassioned one, not a mealy-mouthed suggestion. He was excited about what he was, he was proposing they do. And how many times, and not just in the church, do we hear the word, somebody should do something about that? Guess what? We are somebody. Two, Nehemiah didn't try to be a lone ranger. He asked for help. We get in trouble whenever we try to do it on our, on our own, don't we? And three, when Nehemiah cast the vision, the people rallied around him and the vision with full support. I am not yet a pastor. We'll see what God has in store. But I have worked pretty closely with a few pastors over the years. And my observation has been few things inspire, encourage, and bring joy to a pastor's heart like the people of the church catching his vision for ministry. That ignites something in a pastor's heart. Whenever he feels like, hey, the vision I've got for this community, I'm selling it. I'm selling it to the people. They're rallying behind me. We're going to do it. We're going to make a difference. We're going to change. We're going to change Wimber. We're going to change Bedford. We're going to change Island Bank. We're still pretty early in, in this year, in 2019. So I encourage you this year, rally around your pastor and the ministries of this church. I've known a lot of, well, I do a lot of reading all the time, but I've, reading another book um, I just finished and it talks about it, it compares and contrasts the New Testament church 
the book of Acts. If you've not read it lately, read it again. And they talk about how they changed their culture. They were dynamic. They moved. They were excited. And he draws some, some parallels, some, some comparisons, and some contrasts between that church and what we call the church today. And there's some differences as a, a 2019 believer versus a New Testament right after Jesus died believer, there's some differences from me to, from them to me. And I can tell you, I'm not sure all of them are good differences. I have to say maybe they're not so good differences. But as you reflect on this message this week, I'd like you to ask yourself one question. Where am I in the burden, vision, action journey? Maybe you've never given this a whole lot of thought, and after this morning, you can't have that excuse anymore. You're welcome. Maybe you found yourself making the statement, somebody should do something. Guess what? We're somebody. Perhaps a particular need in your community pulls on your heartstrings. And I gave just a few examples this morning, and please understand they were just examples. You know, maybe you have a, a heart for something entirely different. But make a plan. The old saying goes, failing to plan is planning to fail. And once you've made your plan, take it to your pastor, and with his approval and guidance, rally some support. Do something. Join in. You know, help at the next chicken barbecue and, and sidle up to that person who's scooping the beans beside you and talking, start talking to him about Jesus. And now maybe you've done all that and you're ready for action. What are you waiting for? Head out. Can we pray this morning? Father, I thank you for this time I got to spend with your precious people, God. Lord, just in two visits, I'm beginning to, to love this church and appreciate them. Father, this was a, a simple message this morning, Lord. I didn't do any Greek or Hebrew word studies, not that I'm qualified to do those things. God, it was just a, a simple word using an example of a, a simple practical man in your word to maybe challenge us to do more, to do better, to do different. Lord, I know I was challenged as I, as I prepared this message. So God, I ask that you would bring this word to our mind in the coming days and weeks and months even, Lord, that we would be challenged to step up, to do something for you, different or new, or something that's been going on for a long time that we can be a part of, Lord. I ask you to equip this church, Lord, set this church on fire for you, so to speak, Lord that they would be anxious and eager to tell people, Lord, we, we sometimes get lost in the fact that, that of the, the wonder and the amazing thing you did for us, Jesus, on the cross. Help us to be re-excited about that work that you did on the cross to tell people, Lord God, guide this church, guide, guide them, guide every church, Lord, that's preaching your word in this community, Lord, that we would team together and band together and do something for your kingdom, Lord, that heaven would be bigger and hell would be smaller as a result of Wimber Assembly. Bless these people, I pray. Be with them as they travel home. Give us all safe journeys. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. That's all I have.